As we pick up in Acts chapter 20, I'd like to go back a little bit last week, because to those of you that weren't here, this is a good lead-in basically for the beginning of Acts 21, where we're going to see some more geographical kind of uh, geographical um, uh, information here. So let's pick up in Acts chapter 20, and as we read verses 35 to 38, we'll begin with Acts 21. Paul says, as as in the book of Acts, Dr. Luke is writing, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring he ought to support the weak, and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more, and they accompanying him unto the ship. And it came to pass that after we were gotten from them and had launched, we came with a straight course unto Kuas, and the day following unto Rhodes, and from thence unto Patera. And finding a ship sailing over unto Phoenicia, we went aboard and set forth. Now when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed into Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unlaid her burden. And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit, though he should not go up to Jerusalem. And this was, this was one of many warnings. And when we had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way, and they all brought us on our way with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave one of another, we took ship, and they returned home again. And when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophecy, prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth his girdle, and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What mean you to weep and to break mine heart? For I am, for I am ready, he says, for I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So we see the heart of a pastor here with Paul. Several weeks ago, I gave you some really good maps regarding this third missionary journey. If you have them, you may want to turn to them. If you don't, you have the 67th book of the Bible, which is your maps in the back. You could open to them and look at Paul's third missionary journey. And it's kind of interesting to follow along and see what happened here. But you have plenty of time to do that because we're going to do a little bit of review first. So basically, last week we had lengthy discussion regarding what the, had the, with how the churches had today have compromised, how Paul had said very plainly that I have preached the whole gospel, I have held nothing back, which is basically we were talking about how important that is for an overseer of the church to hold nothing back and to preach the whole gospel, and how he not only would preach to the whole council, but he warned of 
several things. And we have several applications from last week. Does anybody remember any of them? There was like five main applications about what Paul had spoke about. Yes, thank you. That was number two. The first one was Paul preaching the whole council. As he said, I held nothing back. Verse 27. He said there were wolves that have come in. And and we talked about how that's not some ancient myth or legend, but it's extremely contemporary because for the, back then there were wolves that have come into the church. And Paul said they have brought perverse things. They say perverse things. And I think that we can say today that that has happened probably exponentially in the church where wolves have come in, they say perverse things, and they bring trying to woo their own disciples. And that's happened. We talked about that. So we went into some other applications about Paul protecting the flock. And that's very important. Pastor. Amen. Right. Amen. And that goes back to three weeks ago when we spoke about what happened when Paul was talking about the whole council with Schedule 501c3 tax form for the churches today, that once you sign them, right there we read the case of Bob Jones versus the state down there back in 1983, where basically it says you are only supposed to talk about current community conscience and not against it. And there's actually a whole other section. We're not even allowed to name the names of politicians. It says that. You sign that paper, you can't do it. And so the reason we bring that up is Paul never. Paul would not be bound. He would not be borders as to what would come out of his mouth. He would reprove, he would rebuke, and he would, as Pastor Olson said, he would name names. And that's exactly how we warn. How can you warn somebody if you don't know what to warn them against? It's a very good point. So we saw basically leading down to protecting the flock. We saw some other applications basically coming down to verses 28 to 35. That uh, protecting the flock is being an overseer, feeding the church of God, keeping out grievous wolves that do not spare the flock, warns them of those that speak perverse things to draw disciples unto themselves. He says, I warned you, in verse 31, if I warn you, you warn them. Paul's teaching them. You do what I do because Christ is teaching me and I'm teaching you and the Holy Spirit leading you. You can find this out. Lisey. Right, right. 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 You know, that's important because, you know, something we didn't really talk about last week is when we get to verses 33 to 34, the application there, and it basically comes right out of the verse, covet no man's silver or gold. Paul did not. Take care of your own affairs. Be not greedy of gain in the ministry. And what Paul is saying here, and that's a very good point, is what you don't want to go up against as an overseer or, you want, or, or leading the church is you don't want to be bought. You don't want to have strings attached to some big political 
like political money coming in or something that will cause you to be very careful because once you have it, it's hard to lose it. He's saying, I wasn't greedy of gain. I took no man's gold. I took no man's silver. He was saying, I don't have strings attached. He kept himself free because Christ said himself, he that is free is free indeed. And he had the freedom to preach whatever the Lord laid on his heart. And that was basically, if he was doing it expositorily, it would be from the Old Testament, right? And Paul preached in the Old Testament. So that's extremely important. Then he ends up in verse 35 and he says, remember to support the weak. And, and we, we always need to remember the words of our Lord. It is more blessed to give than to receive, he says. And this is right out of the Sermon on the Mount. This is right out of the whole of Christ's ministry is taking care of the poor, taking care of those that are infirm, taking care of the widows and all. And, and remember how in Matthew 5, 7 and 8, we read, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And then we go on to the last application, feed my sheep. And we went back to John 21 and we spoke about how Christ asked Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. He says, feed them. Don't take from them. Don't use them as a demographic in order to be able to make big money, in essence. The ultimate question that we ask, that we were talking about where we left off was, what think ye of Christ? And when Christ asked Peter, do you love me? Love is everything and, is, and it is life or death to our Christian duties to Christ. Love is everything. Paul laid out what love is all about. And we've, we ended with these verses, 2 Corinthians 5, 13-15, for whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. And so we see how Christ says, basically, and what we talked about last week is being a Christian is a throwaway life in a lot of ways. When we give ourselves over to Christ, the Lord is giving us unto Himself, and we're there for others. And Christ had said to Peter, Lovest thou more than these? Lovest thou me? And it proves Christ does not trust His sheep to just anyone. That's what I love about that. He doesn't just hand His sheep over to wolves. And because of greedy, being greedy of gain, Paul would not do that. Peter wouldn't do it. He would look at, what the, look at the travels. We're about to go in. We're going to see some more cities. And in each one of those cities, the first thing that Paul does is he would preach in the Jewish synagogues. He would do that. That's kind of dissipating now because Paul is getting ready to go into some really hard times. But he would always search out the disciples. And he would always, he would always go after the playing field and see what he was up against. He would try, he would differentiate those that really loved Christ, those that he was teaching, and those that were wolves. And that was a very important job that he had. Remember what Christ said in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, Then said he unto the disciples, It is impossible, but that all fences will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he cast into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. And that is the condemnation that Christ has left for those wolves that come in and say perverse things to draw out disciples and to, and to basically hoodwink them. Paul is in peril. 
as we go to we go here as we go to chapter 21 we see that it's interesting how chapter 21 opens up as we read and it came to pass that after we were gotten from them and had launched find that very interesting we see this opening phrase begins with an interesting word pattern it says that we were gotten from them I find this fascinating that it does not say that we had left them and arbitrarily would love to stay with them, but we had to move forward, is what he's saying. Once again, it says that we were gotten from them and had launched. And we, to finish up chapter 20, when you la- see those last verses, they kissed him and they wept sorely over him. That wasn't just a goodbye because of such real intimacy with the, with, with, with the uh, ministry with Paul. But I think it goes more than that. And I think if we look at that, I think Paul was now really believing that now it's time to go move forward because of the peril that lie lie ahead there. He didn't want them persecuted. He knew they were coming after him. Asia Minor, the eyes were upon him and it was time for him to go. But ultimately the main reason was the Holy Spirit had grabbed his heart and it was time to move forward. Here's a conflict not between the disciples, elders in the church, but Asia Minor was heating up. It was becoming a hotbed. And there were two ways that Paul could see by the direction of the Holy Spirit he needed to get moving at this time. The Holy Ghost had moved Paul to get to Jerusalem. And Paul in his heart would have thought that if he stayed in the contention that continued to rise amongst the Romans and the Grecians and the Jews on top of that, that these three major factions, the people there themselves, could have also been bodily harmed jailed and maybe beaten and crucified and on the second hand when they wept sore and fell upon paul's neck and kissed him they they may have known themselves that he wasn't safe anywhere all along these journeys we go into the grecian islands the archipelago there that basically all these islands right there in the gnc in the greek area that all along there and on the way down to syria both places he's warned not go to jerusalem he is warned that there is a real hotbed there and it's very dangerous you talk about a superhero, you see all these paper people that are on television pretending to be superheroes, you know, going around doing all these incredible things. Paul the Apostle was incredible. He was an incredible man. He had such courage and such strength. We see here that, he, that, it, that, this, that this hotbed is going to be a hotter bed in Jerusalem because there are many that lay await for him. And he had said on occasion that he had to go bound in the spirit of Jerusalem and not knowing the things that should befall him there. That takes an immense amount of faith to be able to do that. Most people would have turned and went the other way. They would have found a convenient ministry, maybe on some beautiful island, and just opened the Bible, handed out some stuff, and just stayed there and said, oh, that's easy, I'm not not messing with this. But no, he said, I'm going to Jerusalem no matter what befalls me. And the spirit, I'm bound in the spirit. I think the question for us as Christians this morning is, are we bound in the Spirit with our ministry and with our love for Christ? Are we bound in the Spirit to pray and to ask the Spirit to move us day by day, or is our ministry just 40 minutes on Sunday morning? We see some of the towns which actually were islands that would lead to the port where Paul would go to Syria, and he has an incredible journey. We, we read here in verse 1 that we see he came straight course into Kuos, or it's, all, or it's also called Kos. C-O-S is another word for it if you look it up. And the day following went up the roads, and from thence unto Patera. 
If you have your maps and you want to see where that is, you can see basically what I'd like you to see more than anything else if you have that. Look at those little Grecian islands and look how long of a journey it was from there all the way down to Phoenicia, Syria, where you see Tyre and Sidon right northwest of Jerusalem. It's, that is an incredible voyage. And what happens? Well, first he's in Kuos or Kos or Kaz. It's a small island in the Grecian islands between Miletus and Rhodes. It is in the archipelago opposite the coast of Korea and Asia Minor. Minor famous. It was very famous for expensive wines, ointments, purple dyes. And remember Lydia, the seller of purple. And we see fine textured silk, cotton items that were very expensive. And a lot of these islands and all had all of these expensive items. And what does that tell us? Basically, what Paul was going to have to do in order to get down to Syria, he was not going to board some big luxurious cruise line when he at his, you know, at his, at his uh, leisure, book it months ahead of time and have some easy first-class ride down to Syria. He's going to be in this rickety cargo ship, bringing these goods all the way up from the Grecian islands down, all the way down hundreds of miles down to Syria, and he's going to be basically sailing with the cargo. And that's basically it. So these were trade ships. And here we're, you know, kind of building this. We see there's the shipping here has expensive items. These areas had expensive items. And this is kind of interesting because it's not easy to get a sudden, quick ship to go exactly where you want it to go all the way from, he actually left from Patera and went all the way down to Syria. It takes time to do that. You ought to try to get a ship today. I mean, there's been some time in my business over the years, there's been um, incidences where I've worked with certain dealers that have wanted to specifically buy machinery to send them overseas. We had this thing called the gray market years ago, and these Japanese machines that had Japanese-like engines in them were extremely desired overseas, and so when they popped up in America, they wanted them over there, and then they would buy them. But to get a ship in order to take one machine to get it over there would take months. It could be they would go out of the port of Wilmington or the port of Charlotte in South Carolina or down to Miami, and you have to get Twic cards to get into some of these seaports. It takes weeks to do that. You have to get them shipped. There can't be one leak on any of the machines or else they turn them away, and it costs hundreds of dollars to fix the leaks. They can't have any kind of contamination on them because they won't allow that to go into other, uh, other lands. And so it takes weeks to get ships. And once you get a machine or some kind of a like a shipping container or something on one of these ships, it's weeks before they go overseas and they land over in Europe or some of these other areas. And you can see this. This was no different. And it just so happens he just basically gets this ship going to Syria when he needs it. It didn't take him months. It was actually pretty quick. That's the direction of the Holy Spirit. The Lord, the Lord had all of this ready for Paul. He had everything just the way he wanted it, as always, in his providential work. And then we see he went to Rhodes. This is a large island in the Aegean Sea, southwest of Asia Minor. Another major tourist and commercial and tourist center. And as you would enter into the harbor of Rhodes, there stood a famous colossus of Rhodes, a huge bronze statue of the sun god Apollo, built by the Greek sculptor Charis, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, like the goddess Diana. There's this big, massive statue as you come into the harbor right there, and thus, basically, that kind of solidifies and shows the sentiment of all the areas and the hostile areas that Paul was in, that it was all pagan worship. Greek philosophy, they worshipped all these gods. Remember Mars Hill and in the unknown god. 
And then from there he goes to Patera, or that is actually in the southern Turkey region. And that's always, even to this day, been a hotbed. This was a coast city of ancient Lycia, from which Paul took a ship for, for Phoenicia. And because of its excellent harbor, many of the coast trading ships stopped at Patera. And this is where he left from, which therefore became an important, it was a wealthy port of entry to the towns of the interior. So it looks that Paul did not board a luxurious cruise ship. He's on a cargo ship. And the chances of getting this ship going to Phoenicia was probably not very good. But he got one, and he's on his way, and then he would make this voyage. Anybody have anything to say? Any questions up until now? Anyone? Okay. Well, so far as we've seen the travels of Paul throughout the Gentile nations to preach the gospel, he has seen a great harvest of souls gathered unto Christ through the gospel. And also, likewise, we've seen great persecutions to Paul he had endured through the Greek nations and throughout the Gentile regions and through all of this. Yet still, out of all of this, the Lord kept him safe. The Lord delivered him. And we can see how the Lord watched over him and guided him as we can read in many verses. But can someone read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 12? You can read that as soon as you get that. 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 to 12. You want to earmark, thank you, Matthew. You want to earmark that last phrase in verse 12. <laughs> you have a love for Christ. You're going to become a moving target sooner or later if you're doing your job. I mean, he says, yay. He says, yay. He says, you can count on it. And all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. On some level, you're going to get it. Paul got it from everywhere. He got it everywhere he went. You're going to have family members making fun of you. You're going to have friends well, pulling away from you. You're going to have even problems sometimes in your own home, in your own church. It could be anywhere. But somehow, some way, if you follow Christ, you're going to get it. It's not hard to follow God. Because that's very general and generic today. The word God can mean anything. But when you follow, I follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and without Him there's nothing. And I have to say, when I was up there at the MVA the other day, and they were, they were putting this thing out about um, keeping an eye on the lords, of, uh, the lords of the British, of the Britons, and how there's all kind of problems in America. And they were asking me questions about this. And I said, why can't we just follow the Lord Jesus Christ and stop all this immoral filth? And then the Lord will bless our nation. And people were like, well, what did he say? You know, <laughs> they were all these people saying, what is he talking about? You know, there was a time in this country where everybody knew what that meant. You know, what's that mean? You know, Christ doesn't even exist anymore, according to some people. And then they had these pictures of John F. Kennedy, all these big pictures of Kennedy, and they had Lincoln, and he had a picture of, of uh, uh, I don't know, some other presidents, and they were, we were talking about him, and I told him what I thought about him. But anyway, I said, you need to follow Christ, not worry about the lords of Britain. Oh, I know what I said. We need to follow the Lord. And they said, no, we need to keep an eye on the lords of Britain. They're really hurting. I said, no, we need to follow the Lord. And that's what we need. That's all we'll ever, that's all we need. 
but we need to follow him and we need to do the work. We see him going off, getting Paul getting ready to go off to Jerusalem. He's being warned by those in Asia Minor not to board the ship, to take the long journey, and then later on we'll see Agabus makes the actual prophecy of this. So we see in verse 30, we go towards Cyprus. This voyage across the Mediterranean from Patera to Tyre was approximately a five-day journey. Can you imagine being on one of those ships for five days? You know that they didn't have all these instrumentation on there and these meteorological forecasts. They had to watch the sun. They had to get messengers. They had to talk. They had no idea what they were getting into in the middle of that sea. And can you imagine being on one of those rickety these rickety piles of lumber, and a great big tempest comes. And for five days and five nights, he's on this ship heading down to Syria. Shows how far it was. And we see this voyage across the Mediterranean from Patera to Tyre. And it's treacherous, and it's dangerous, and we always go back to the words of our Lord. What did he warn? Luke chapter 17, verse 25 to 30. I'd like to read that. Can someone look that up and read that? Luke 17, 25 to 30. And this has never changed since the days of Noah, the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire, the Greek philosophical heresies, the Pharisaical dissimulation, and it's no different in America. Paul is heading into great peril, and like he says, yay, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And look what Christ said here in Luke. You can keep going, 28, 29, and 30, please. Likewise also, when the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire mm. from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is See that? Thank you, Lisa. You see where he says, just like the days of Lot. Doesn't that remind you of America today? The days of Lot, when the Son of Man comes back, they will give in into excessive homosexuality. And that's exactly what he's saying here. And this is all these components are showing why Paul goes into a hotbed. Everything else is being worshipped. And even the Jews themselves don't even believe Christ is the Messiah. So Paul, he's on his way and he journeys, and I find this fascinating, he journeys to Tyre. Does anybody remember Tyre? That's an important remembrance because if you go back to the ministry of Christ, many times he spoke of Tyre and Sidon. Remember that? I think that's fascinating. Tyre is mentioned actually go all the way back to Joshua chapter 19 verse 29. Can somebody read that? Joshua 19.29. Anybody have that yet? Thank you. 
Though I had the same problem. <laughs> these, these names. But the, what I want to show is the connection between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Look at the geographical significance there. There's Tyre and Sidon, and if you research the towns of the borders of Asher in Joshua chapter 19, you'll see that these cities were renamed, basically a lot of them because of the Roman Empire and the Hellenistic period, they were renamed, some of these cities were, as we'll see in a minute. But these cities existed all the way back in the days of Moses. There was Joshua, he was laying out the borders, it was Canaan, and he was laying out all of the basically the, uh, the borders of the 12 tribes and where the Lord told them to go in, rid these areas and go in and occupy them and you're going to have judges. But then they started whining and they said, we want to have a king. And the Lord said, well, right, you want to have a king, you're going to lose 50% of everything you have and you're going to lose your, 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 your daughters and your sons. And we see the progression and how now we're in the area where it's all kings. We now have the Roman Empire has a king. And we see back in the Grecian era, that's all kings. You don't see what the Lord had laid out back in the Old Testament, but these areas all still existed. And all these are infallible proofs that the Bible is inerrant. Teresa. I'm going to help you out. Luke 10, 13. Go ahead and read it. Because here's your go. That's like a prophecy, Teresa. We're going right ahead to that next verse. That's exactly what Christ talks about. Yes, and that's a parallel verse that's mentioned in other synoptic gospels. That's how important these two cities were to Christ. He went and did a lot of miracles and a lot of ministry in these areas. Thank you. See that? Christ is talking about the work in Tyre and Sidon, if they had repented. And He said, you reject Me. And then He also says, My apostles, My disciples go from town to town. You go into those cities. What did He say? And if they reject you, shake the dust off of your cloak, and it'll be worse for them than it was in Tyre and Sidon. Remember that, Pastor? Amen. Yep. Right. See, the problem is, I believe, Pastor, correct me if I'm wrong, anyone else, people just like to make their own minds up today what they want to do. They want to make God's mind up for them. I'm going to worship in this way. Or I'm going to worship in this way by not worshiping Him at all. Go ahead and drive around Maryland today. You will see the golf courses are packed today. You will see that some of the ball fields are packed. People trying to add on a couple extra minutes to the life by riding bikes all and down Delaney Valley Road and jogging. They're not worshiping the Lord. The Lord said to do this. And He said, if you don't, to whom much is given, much is required. If you don't, you're going you're gonna to pay for it. Like Pastor Olson always says, nobody gets away with anything. And Paul's here to warn them. And here we see Christ once again talk about Tyre and Sidon. But there was some other talk about Tyre in the Old Testament. I find it's been interesting. I kind of went off on a rabbit trail because I, I just find it fascinating. And 
since I'm the one doing, doing studying, I just kind of throw in there what I can. I mean, I hope it, it works and it's interesting, but I think it's important. But remember how the border, we see the borders of Asher, where there was Tyre. But does anybody remember a king called King Heron? Remember him? He was known by two major kings in the Old Testament. And he provided craftsmen. He provided woodworking. He provided some major artifices and all to the building of the house of David and the building of the house of Solomon. And who was King Heron? 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 11. Can somebody read that? And in the meantime, somebody also look up 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 11. And I just think it's important to look at this area Paul was in. I think that this area in the Bible, the geographical locations, we should pay attention to it, in my opinion. 2 Samuel 5.11, anyone? There he goes. Here him, Ken. That's the very same city, Tyre. First, First Kings nine eleven. If anyone has that. He loved his work so much with this temple and the work Solomon gave him twenty cities. Can you imagine being awarded twenty cities? I wish someone would give me Bel Air so I could kick out that new Muslim community up there. <laughs> you know, he gives them 20 cities. That's, that's a pretty big gift. They're building a whole new community up there on Nova Scotia Road. Isn't that what it is, Teresa? Yep. Why, why could this be an area that weighed heavily on Paul's heart? You're going to see something here. I never knew this. I never even imagined this. Paul is going into a very interesting region. Now he's been on the boat. Now we have to move forward. We have to hit the fast forward button. It's been five days on the boat. Paul's probably tired. He comes into Phoenicia and he goes into these areas. He's go, he goes into Tyre and there's Sidon. Look on your map. There's Phoenicia. There's Ptolemaeus, which Ptolemaeus actually had another name. We'll look at that. But why would this be an area that weighed heavily on Paul's heart when he comes into this region before he goes to Jerusalem? He spends seven days in this area. Then he goes to Ptolemaeus. He's there a day. And then he's out and he's on his way. Well, if you go back to Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Acts 11, verses 19 to 21. Let's read that and see if you can see, if you can see a connection here. Anyone have that? Acts 11, verse 19 to 21. Go back a few pages from where we're at. This was a hotbed for Christianity. Many were incarcerated with their families, beaten, killed, or relocated. That might give you a clue. See that? Thank you, Jacob. 
Look at the connection there. Who was the one that was killed in these verses? Yeah. Deacon. He was a deacon. Stephen. Who was the one that held the cloaks of those that were picking up the stones and hurling them at Stephen and killed him? It was Saul. Paul. That was his former name. Paul's going into the area here where the disciples around that knew Stephen and all they were all friends, evidently. They were, they were disciples. They were followers of Christ. They had fled. It says, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch. This is the area that they went to. And Paul is going there to see the very people that hated him, but then loved him. How could that ever happen? And you think about it in ministry, Paul was the one killing their friends. He was the one on the road to Damascus that asked for a petition from the governor that he could go and expand his territory all the way out to Damascus, and he runs into Christ on the road to Damascus to go get them. And he was there holding their cloaks. Who else could ever, in any type of, you want to call it religion, faith, belief, whatever you want, what else could you see a reversal like this than all that of Christ? Lisey. Oh. Only the Lord can do that. Right. Right. Amen. That's that's a perfect way of trying to bring this around. It's so important. Brother Jerry. Right. Right. Mm. Mm. 
Amen. You know, he, he saw the, the pushback he got at the NBA. Right. So it's really curious how the movement resolved throughout scripture about this. And so to Lucy's point, he reached out. He communed with the Lord. He prayed. Right. Amen. That's a, that's a great point. Remember, I forget his name, the governor of Georgia. Years ago, when they were Lake Pontchartrain, I think it was, with that great big lake there, it was completely dry. On a Monday morning, he had a prayer meeting. And they laughed at him. The media, we should have been keeping a good eye on CNN back there because they were making fun of him. And sure enough, when he prayed on the doorsteps of the General Assembly, it rained that week. That time of prayer is important. And that forgiveness that we see here, everything that happens here is cohesive. It all makes sense as to what Christ laid out. And here when Paul goes through this, we don't see that there was any bad words to him or anybody came back and said, Paul, hey, you're the one that held the cloak of Stephen, you know, we, you've got a long way to go. I think the only aversion we saw to anything at this point really was Ananias. When he, Paul was handed over to Ananias and he said, are you kidding me? This guy's crazy. And the Lord says, you do it because he's one of mine. I prayed, he's prayed, he, he prays. And he said, you take care of him. And from that point forward, Paul goes forward no matter what. I do find it interesting though, as a little caveat on the way down, it says that Cyprus was off to the left on the voyage. He never stopped at Cyprus. Remember, that's where Barnabas was. That was still kind of a, maybe a little bit of a hotbed there, but who knows, maybe they were, they were never going to stop there anyway. But I find that it's interesting that's mentioned, because Cyprus would have been a nice little resting period, perhaps, maybe. But yeah, we see here how Paul goes into this area, and then Paul remained, he fellowshiped. Here the ship would be unlaid of its burdens or taken days to unload its cargo at the seaport, and then it would restock for its next journey, not only with cargo, but provisions for the next voyage, and it would probably take days to do that. And he would wait for the ship to go from there to Ptolemaeus. And we see there, there was such ob obvious peril that where Paul was at this point, at the Grecian islands, he was warned not to go to Jerusalem. Then he was warned here not to go to Jerusalem. Then he, then he journeys about 20 miles, 25 miles south of Ptolemaeus. And he abides there one day back from the ship, which today is just south of Lebanon. Then he was at the city, the Old Testament city actually is called Akko. Or Akko. I think that's how it's pronounced. In Judges 1.31, it says, Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, nor the inhabitants of Zidon, nor of Alab, nor of Akzib, nor of Helbal, nor of Aphek, nor of Rehob. And Akko was renamed Ptolemaeus during the Hellenistic Greek-speaking Jew period and came under Roman domination. Paul was there one day, and he went there from there to Caesarea to see an old, an old foe who became a dear brother and friend. And that old foe would have been Philip was one of the deacons. Philip the evangelist now pops up. And I think that's fascinating. And I, I think that it's not a good, maybe not a good thing to go into that because it's a lot. But I would like to say is we need to, get, we need to stop here. But we read about Philip the evangelist back in chapter 6 and 8. And remember his encounter with the Ethiopian disciple that loved the Lord and wanted to know all about Isaiah 53. Philip was one of those deacons. He would have been a dear friend of Stephen. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 6. So this, may have, this would have been one that maybe Paul could have been thinking in the back of his mind. I wonder what Philip the evangelist is thinking right now about me. But you will find out 
that the only other time that the word evangelist is referred to, as we go and we'll see that next week in the book of Timothy, is when Paul goes to Timothy, do the work in evangelist. But the only one that it's called an evangelist in the Old New Testament here is Philip. And we'll see more about him next week. So let's finish with prayer. I'd like to ask maybe Pastor Olson if you could close us this morning. Thank you.